All right, ladies, welcome to Helim time. So we learned a chapter a week, we started these classes a few years ago. It's the brainchild of our son, Rafi, uh, to elevate his mother's soul through the studying of Tehillim. Now, I know according to our, uh, our order that we're following, we should be doing chapter 59. But since I'm the moderator of this class, uh, we're going to do chapter 60. For good reason, because actually we did 59 earlier. 59 is actually one of the 10 chapters of what's called Tikkun HaKlali. Tikkun HaKlali are 10 chapters that uh, the Zohar Kadosh, then revealed by the rabbi from Breslov, came along and said that if you say these 10 chapters, uh, it's a big tikkun. You might have heard of it, tikkun aklali. Uh, people give the credit to the rabbi from Breslov, but you should know that great rabbis as well, besides the rabbi, have also you know, authenticated that practice of reciting the spe- 10 special chapters. Rabbi Palachi talks about it as well. And uh, you see sometimes it in the book, the 10 chapters, tikkun uh, aklali, they call it. And 59 is one of them. So a few years back, some of our members asked me if I could just explain the 10 chapters. So we did a special series on the 10 chapters. 59 is one of them. So for all of you that can't sleep tonight unless you know what chapter 59 is about, uh, and you made it till now without knowing it, so I don't think it's gonna make a big difference. But if you wanna know, you can go online, just put Tehillim chapter 59, and it'll come up and, you know, It'll be, uh, it'll be explained. But we need to explain the new chapter, which is chapter 60. Now again, as we said in the previous classes, uh, a lot of these chapters that we're learning are reactions to things that happen in David Melech's lives. So Tehillim is actually, uh, goes together with Navi. You have to be uh, fluent in the prophets and then when you know the story that happened in the Navi, you can know what David is talking about in his Tehillim. The Navi is really the story of David's episodes, the things that happened to him. And then Tehillim is when he prayed and he asked for Hashem's help and so on and so forth. So every chapter in Tehillim, you have to try to draw a line to where that chapter is in Navi. And study the chapter and then you'll have a, what we call a, a, a context. Granted, they don't teach uh, enough Navi. You know, we learn a lot of things, but they don't learn enough Navi. I was lucky because uh, in Magen David, I learned it with Hacham Baruch Shalom. Those days, they taught the kids Navi, and we were tested on it, and we had to know it, you know, from the beginning of Yeshua all the way to the end. And when I went into high school, uh, no complaints, but uh, they didn't teach us the later prophets, and I had concern. I went to the rabbi, I said, why don't we learn prophets? And he said, we're a non-profit organization. <laughs> It's a nice line, and that's it. We went, they went further. <clears throat> so it's neglected, unfortunately. I used to learn with a, uh, a rabbi, uh, he passed away, Rabbi Tekatsky, his name was, Rosef Tekatsky, the father-in-law of Ramakil Katla. And uh, I studied with him. I studied with him. He taught me. I didn't study with him. He, he taught me whatever, you know, he was doing. I sat in front of him, put it that way. And uh, <clears throat> for many years. <clears throat> and his custom was 
that before we would sit and study Talmud, because we studied the Talmud in depth, he would learn two chapters of Navi. <clears throat> and I thought that was very uh, surprising to me, as a Rosh Hashiva, and all of a sudden, he says, you've got to learn Navi. And Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky held that, Allah Shalom as well. Rosh Hashiva, Torah You have to study uh, a few chapters of Navi a day, not to neglect, you know, the Tanakh. <clears throat> Unfortunately, we know Tanakh, um, again, no claims. We know it because we're forced to learn it when we're teaching Tehilim, let's say. So now we get it through the back door. Or when we're learning a piece of the Talmud that will cross-reference something from the Navi, we have to open up the Navi from the back door. But nobody studies it, you know, for its sake. It's only because you need to study the Gemara, so we have to learn the Navi. So, again, I didn't come to fix the world. I'm sure there are bigger problems that we have to deal with, but nonetheless, it's your lucky day because you're going to get a two-for-one. We're going to learn chapter 60, and it's cross-referenced in the book of Shemuel Bet, uh, chapter... Uh, eight. Now, Shemuel Bet, there was only one Shemuel. Shemuel, they broke his book up into two, into two parts, so it's like part one, part two. So this is in Shemuel Bet. It's talking about when David uh, sent his general, Yoav, Yoav ben Siruya, and he sent them to Syria to fight. Something's never changed. Israel and Syria have been fighting from the times of David HaMelech, and if you look even in the beginning, you'll find that he sends them to fight in two cities that we are well familiar with, being that most of us are from that region. And uh, the war is in Aram Naharaim. Aram Naharaim is, uh, we would call today Damascus. Uh, it's between the rivers, because it's on the border next to Iraq, and Iraq has Naharaim. Naharaim is two rivers, which is the Tigris, and the Euphrates, and then the city that my grandparents descend from, Aram Soba, which is written in this chapter as well. We call that uh, Aleppo, or as they refer to it as Halab. So imagine that, there were, Yoav was fighting wars in Damascus and in Halab all the way back. Ultimately, he would eventually build a tremendous synagogue, Yoav bin Siruya, that is in Aleppo, it's one of the most magnificent synagogues, probably the oldest synagogue that exists today in the world. It's from the time of uh, David, and it's still around. Uh, during the war between the civil war in, in Syria, when they were fighting with each other, uh, somebody asked me, what's my opinion? And I wish I said, I hope both sides win. Uh, they should both be successful, let them kill each other. But in the meantime, the, the synagogue was being bombarded and through intervention of some members of our community, they were able to reach out to the Russians. Could you believe it? The Russians of all people who have a lot of influence in that region. I've said many times that Russia and Surya are the same letters. There's a natural connection between those two countries. And uh, they gave protection to go rebuild the synagogue and the cemetery next to that synagogue. Something, uh, something fascinating that there's a synagogue of Yoav bin Siruya. It's like uh, seven pillars. Everybody's seen the pictures. Anyway, Yoav is there. The king of Aram Soba at the time was Haddar Ezer. wasn't Assad. Those guys weren't around yet. It was Haddar Ezer. And um, David Melech was able to, there was armies, very victorious, the Pasuk says, Elef Vishva Meot Parashim, 1700 uh, chariots, horsemen, 
and uh, he took into captivity 20,000 soldiers, foot soldiers, and uh, then he went to Damascus, and he was able to kill in Damascus another 22,000 people. So David was very successful in this war over here. Now, there is a, there's a backstory. There's a backstory that took place. Uh, and the backstory is not written in the Navi, but it's actually written in the Midrash. I made a copy of the Midrash. Pasuk says that. Oh, I can read it from over here, I guess. <clears throat> what happened was like this when Yoav was fighting the war, so he came to Aram. Now, we know Aram are descendants of Laban, Laban Arami. We know that guy from the Torah, when Yaakov Abinu's father in law, troublemaker, number one. But on the way out, when Yaakov left his father-in-law after 22 years, so they made a peace treaty, if you remember. They got to a place called Gal'ad, Gal'ad, and Laban and Yaakov made a treaty amongst themselves. I won't fight with you, you don't fight with me. Peace, truce, they made a monument, they named the monument, and that was one of the earliest peace treaties between the Jewish people and uh, an enemy nation. It's Yaakov Abinu with Laban. He represents Aram. And all of a sudden, Yoav comes with his armies and starts to attack Aram. So they come to uh, Yoav and they say, hey, you're in contempt. Aren't you the grandson of Yaakov Abinu? Don't you? Aren't you Jewish? And your great-great-grandfather Yaakov? Well, we're, we're the grandchildren of uh, Laban. So don't you remember there was a deal that was made over here? We made a pact. You said you're not going to fight with us. Now you come along now and you're leaving Eretz Yisrael and you're coming to attack Syria. Get out of here. Go back home. Uh, otherwise they're going to call the UN peacekeepers. Yeah, now what they're going to do? So uh, Yoav was surprised by this. He felt that it's, it's a good question. So much so that he told his soldiers, time out. And he went back to Israel to ask David Melech this question. Unbelievable that Sadiqim, they're not just warriors to go fight to kill people. If, if they're not allowed to fight, Yoab was worried that it might cause a Hilul Hashem. Here the Goyim are going to come along and say, ah, those Jews, they make deals, they don't keep their word. They made a peace treaty with their grandfather, and Yaakov is known to be Ish Emet, the honest one, and now all of a sudden, years later, their children don't even follow what their grandfather did. We made a pact. Yoab says, we cannot make Hilul Hashem. If this war is not to be fought, then... So he didn't believe Yoad that he had big enough shoulders to answer that question. So he went to the Gadol Ador. Who's the Gadol Ador? King David. He went to David Melech. Unbelievable, the righteousness of these people. I want you to put this in your brain so you don't have any misconceptions. I know when you hear the word general in an army, so you're thinking uh, Norman Schwarzkopf, you're thinking some uh, you know, brutal guy that fights. The, the generals in our armies that were Tumarvi were the most perfect tzaddikim that you could imagine. Yoavin Siruya is a, if he was living today, he would be the Gadolador. Forget about his, his prowess in, 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 on, on the battlefield. He was great tzaddikim, these were. <coughs> and you see it in this case. They weren't just bloodthirsty people trying to kill. 
if we're not allowed to do it, if it's going to create a chanud Hashem, so they, uh, they have to go back. So he humbles himself in front of David HaMelech. And the Midrash comes along and says that David came along and presented the question to the Sanhedrin. Okay. So this was like a Supreme Court question. Came to the Supreme Court, it came to the Sanhedrin, as we'll see. And Sanhedrin said, we had a similar question like this already, and we have an answer. And I want to give you the answer of the Sanhedrin. They said like this. A similar question came up when the Jewish people were fighting against Pilishtim. Now don't mix Pilishtim with the Palestinians of today. It's different, different people. But there was a people called Pilishtim, and actually Abraham Abinu made a promise with a king, Abimelech, who was the king of Pilishtim in the times of the Torah. We actually read this reading on Rosh Hashanah, how Abraham makes a treaty with Abimelech that our people will not fight you and you don't fight us, not us, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. And then all of a sudden the Jews go fight Pilishtim. And then Pilishtim came again with the same question. Hey, what happened to the treaty? That answer was an easy one. There were different people. The Pilishtim people that Abraham made the contract with were not around anymore. These people happened to be people living in Pilishtim area, but they weren't descendants of Pilishtim. So Sanhedrin said, you have no problem. Now in this case, they had a different logic. They said, it's true. We made a contract with Laban that we can't fight Aram. And these people, by the way, are the real heirs of Laban. So it's not a different people. But it's still permissible. <laughs> well, how do you get around that? And the explanation is because they broke the contract first. They started first and they're in contempt. Therefore, the deal is off. When did they break the contract? If you remember in the summer parashiot that we read about Balak and Bil'am. Now Bil'am was a descendant of Laban. Some say it was the Gilgul of Laban. Some say it was the grandson of Laban. However you want to learn it. But Bil'am and Laban are from the same cloth. Bil'am came to curse the Jewish people. Hold it. What about the contract? So therefore, you don't hold by the contract, so therefore we're not obligated to hold by the contract. You broke it already. That means you can't hold us to a higher standard that you don't hold yourselves to. And therefore, what? Every Monday and Thursday you're going to come fight us. And when we come to defend ourselves, you go, hey, the contract. We know that trick. So therefore, the Sanhedrin said, nothing doing. Told your ab, go back and, uh, and fight. And uh, fight he did. He went back and he, um, he was able to take uh, all these kept captives. So now let's read the Pasuk inside. That's the back story. And I start in Perik Samech. Lamnatseyah. Lamnatseyah always is the conductor. These songs were written for the conductor in the Beit HaMikdash, the musical conductor. And David would give them these songs and ultimately they would sing them and conduct them in an orchestra in the Beit HaMikdash, Al-Shushan Edut. Okay, now. Shushan Edut. Now, what is, what is Shushan over here? So Shushan, I know you're thinking Shushan Abira, Purim. Don't, don't go there for a minute. Let's explain it simply. 
It's not Purim yet. Shushan is a nickname for the Sanhedrin. The high court had different names they referred it to. So one of the names they refer it to is Shoshanim, the roses. And therefore, as we learned earlier, that Yoav would take his question to David, and David would have to bring it to Shushan, to the Sanhedrin, for a ruling. Now, I don't know if you have books in front of you, and even if you do, I'm not sure if you have uh, Rashi in front of you. So please allow me to read some Rashi. Kishinilhami Maram Naharayim, when Yoav was fighting with Aram Naharayim, and I told you why they call it Naharayim, because it's between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Vishalah at Yoav Alehim, Amru Loh, so the Aram people said to Yoav, Lom Banav Shal Yaakovatim, aren't you from the children of Yaakov? You made a promise to Laban. You made a monument. You made a treaty. You didn't know how to answer. So he came back from Syria to David. In Israel. That's what Aram said to me. They went to ask the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin answered back, Didn't they break the Shivu'ah first? You're worried about us? First of all, Balak was from Aram, and Balak came after us. Kushan Rish'ataim is another example who was an Arami. So that's what the Pasuk says, if you look, Lam Naseh al Shushan, this is the story when Yoav received the ruling from Shushan, from the Sanhedrin, Edut and testimony. Mikhtam. We learned last week, or a few weeks ago, that any time it's a very precious chapter, they call it a chapter of Mikhtam, which comes from the words Ketem Paz, which is a beautiful, shiny piece of jewelry. Le David, this is for David. Le Lamed. Le Lamed is... Practical lessons to be learned. Lelamed, that we wrote these chapters in order to instruct, in order to teach. Behatsoto et aram naharayim. Behatsoto means when he went to fight. Nitsu, uh, Nitsu is to fight. Shne anashim natsim, like it says in the Pasuk in the Torah. Behatsoto et aram naharayim. When he went to fight, aram naharayim, which is Damascus, with aram soba, which is halab. Vayashov yoav. Now we understand the Pasuk. And Yoav returned. What do you mean he returned? Because we just learned he went back to Israel for a ruling and then he came back in order to execute and punish. And that's what it means over here. Vayashov Yoav. Now, what happened was, I mean, it's unbelievable the deja vu over here. You know, as much as you think history changes, nothing changes. It's all the same. They say history repeats itself. What happened was when he came back, uh, you have Syria that's fighting us. Another enemy came along and joined them. And that is Edom. Different enemy. So it's just like when we were fighting in Israel and all the enemies around us came and attacked us at the same time. So Syria was known for that. They make pacts with other countries and they come to us, one comes from the north, one comes from the south and they sandwich us in. So when Yoav came back, all of a sudden he sees Edom is there. Oh, what's Edom doing? Where, where, where these guys come from? Okay. Join, join, join the crowd, they also want to die. Baruch Abba. 
So therefore, they came also. So the pasuk says, Bayashom Yoab, Yoab returned Bayach et Edom. He attacked Edom. Uh, how many people? Shenem Asar Aleph. So Shenem Asar Aleph is uh, 12,000. So they were, they were doing good. 18,000 over here, 20,000 over there. It was, it was good for the Jewish people. So the pasuk comes along and says, and we continue. Now here David is going to start to make his, make his prayer during this time. It seems that it wasn't easy in the beginning. So the pasuk says, Elohim, zenahtanu peratstanu. What does that mean? Elohim always represents the judgment of God. And even though we were able to overcome Edom in that war, you must know, ladies, that there is no enemy greater to us in our history than Edom. We all know that Amalek is from Edom. We don't have to go too far back. We all know what Edom did in the destruction of European Jewry in the 1930s and the 1940s. The tzaddikim saw all that. They saw what Edom is capable of doing. And therefore, Rashi says that even though David was victorious in this war against Edom, he saw what Edom is going to do to us in the future. And again, I go back to Rashi and says, Kishinafla Edom biyado. When Edom fell in his hands, meaning in this case, David won the war. Safabiru Hakodesh. He had a, a vision. Sha'atidim Edomim Limshol bi Israel. That Edom is going to rule over Israel. Viligzor bi Israel Gizerot Raot. And he's going to make terrible decrees. So he prayed for mercy regarding the subjugation of the Jews in exile. So he prayed, he prayed for, our, um, for our protection. And then David Amela comes along and he says like this. I'm reading Pasuk Dalit. Again, if you want to get Gimal better, Elohim Zinahtanu, God, you abandoned us. Peratstanu, you, you made a breach in us. Anafta, you got angry at us. Teshovivlanu, God, return to us. Come back to us. Don't, uh, don't leave us in the hands of our enemies. And he says, Hira'ashta eritz pitzamta, that when Edom came after us, it was like an earthquake. When the earth makes noise, that's when it's cracking. When is the earth cracking? During an earthquake, there's a fault line. In there. So it was like you, 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 you shook the world, and there was a, there was a crack. David uh, Amalek is comparing the troubles of B'nai Israel against Edom like an earthquake. So he says, Dear God, Fix the cracks, fix the breakings. Kimata, because we are, we are going to fall. We're in danger. Now again, he's praying on two levels. He's praying for the current war that he's fighting in uh, Aram Soba with the two enemies. And he's also praying for the future of Klai Yisrael. 
Hiraita Amecha. Now, this is what I'm going to tell you now. I found this today from a Hatam Sofer. I must tell it to you because I find it amazing how everything is in the Torah. The Hatam Sofer, many years ago, in the year Taf Kuf Tzaddi Zayin. Uh, let's figure that out for a minute. That's 597. That's the year 597, 697. So, so it's close to 200 years ago. We're in 57 now. That was in 55. So Hatam Sofer makes a speech, I guess in Preshburg, where he lived in Hungary. We actually went to see the grave of the Hatam Sofer. It's not story time now, Tati, another time. And he gave a speech on the 24th day of Tevet. What happened was there was a uh, massive uh, destruction that took place in the north of Israel. And he writes over here in his introduction to his speech, Neherav Eretz HaGalil, the Galil, the north, was destroyed. The ayarot, the cities were pillaged and destroyed. And the houses were razed to the ground. And thousands of Jews were killed. I don't know the history of this of this pogrom or this what it was exactly. And amongst the dead were some of the greatest rabbis of the land. And three major cities were demolished. And they are Sfat, Tiberia, and Shechem. Those are the famous cities. And a fire came up. Miyam Tiberia from the Kinneret, from the waters in Tiberias. It seemed maybe it was like an earthquake. And its walls fell. And 30 villages were demolished. I don't know, you have to go, uh, go back on the Google and see exactly what happened in that year in the northern uh, Galilee. It sounds like there was a demolition over here between the cities. So the Hatab Sofer called the congregation and made a special eulogy about this great tragedy. And then he writes, Ledati, according to my understanding, Mirumaz Bikra. This tragedy already David Amelik was predicting in the Pasuk that we just mentioned. He says, that there's going to be a great earthquake and the land is going to crack. It seems it was an earthquake that, that they got hit by. And then the next words is, So he says, if you take those words, which literally means cure the fault line and put the land back together, he says, if you take the words, Shebare Akimati, you ever play Bagel? I'm not gonna teach you how to play that now. Point is, you take letters and you switch them around and you can make different words from them. So if you take the letters Refa, Shevareha, Kimata, and you boggle them around, you get the following. You get the the words actually starting with the words patsamta. Uh, my, 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 my correction. Patsamta shevareha kimata. You see, patsamta or petsamta, 
And then you see Shevareha Kimata. Four, four words in the Pasuk that mentions the earthquake. So he says, if you take those words, Petzamta, Shevareha, Kimata, Yesh Letzaref Otiyot, Sfat, Yam Teberia, Shechem. It has the exact letters of Sfat, was the city that was affected. Yam Teberia, that's the Kineret that he talked about, and the city of Shechem. So you see, uh, amazing. And then he, he goes on to explain. Uh, why it happened. It's kind of, kind of frightening. He said because the people neglected visiting Jerusalem on their trips to Israel. He says everybody was infatuated with going to Sfat and Miron because that's where the great Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was buried and Arizal is buried in, in, in Sfat and the great Sadiqim in Tiberias and Jerusalem was left without anybody, you know, paying it respect. Therefore, you know, Jerusalem took, its, uh, took it personal. You don't want to offend Jerusalem. When you offend Jerusalem, he gets upset, and therefore God shook up the north in order to make sure that... The, that's, I mean, this is prophecy. Antab Zofer can see this in the Pesukim, and then to come along and say that, um, you know, the lesson over here is when you go to Israel, you know... So what are we going to say when you have people go to Israel? They just they don't go to Jerusalem or, 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 or Tiberias. They go to Elat for ten days. Forget about that. Talk about earthquakes. You know that's a volcano. So therefore, you have to visit the holy cities. When my, my, my practice is not that anybody cares about my practice, but just tell, you know what I do is that when I go to Israel, I make it my business to visit the four holy cities. You must visit the four holy cities. That is, I'll says the four holy cities correspond to God's holy name, Yudke Vavke. And when you visit the four holy cities, which they are, Jerusalem, Hebron, not easy to get there, but you go visit Hebron. How could you go to Israel and not visit your parents? It's Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Marat, and Machpelah. Anybody is so, 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 so callous to go and not visit the parents when they're there? And then, of course, Sifat and Tiberia. Those are the four holy cities. You got to make a... But not to neglect one against the other. Today... The people go, they go to Masada, they go to Yamamela, they go ziplining in, uh, I don't know where, they do some kayaking somewhere, they go to the bullet factory, and then they go, uh, I don't know what, they climb some mountains, they do some excavating, and then that's it, they're tired, they go, they sit on a beach in Tel Aviv. What are you talking about? You didn't visit one of the four cities. Here it says because they went to Sfat and Tiberia and they neglected Jerusalem, there was already Rash in, in Israel. All right? Anyway, the pasuk continues. I mean, I thought, that was, I thought that's an amazing Hatam Sofer. He was able to find the earthquake in the pasuk, and he was able to find a remez to the cities in those words that are in the pasuk. It's uh, really stunning. All right, clearly I get more excited than you do about these things, but nonetheless, I must share them with you uh, because they are amazing. All right, where are we? Pasuk here. This is again, God, he's saying to God, you showed Amecha Kasha, you showed that um, you were tough. You showed your measure of justice. This is a famous quote in Tehillim. You gave us to drink wine. What type of wine? Tar'ila wine. Anybody ever hear of the brand called Tar'ila wine? 
you heard of Kedem. This is not Kedem and it's not Carmel uh, either. Tar'ila is a Hebrew word for poison. You should know from that wine. So he says, the wine that you gave us to drink was the wine of, of poison, which means the wine that uh, unfortunately was, was, a, was, 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 was a, death, a death sentence. Natata lide'echa, now listen to this pasu, another classic. Natata lide'echa nes let noses, mepene koshet sela. Now, the way we're going to explain it first is according to Rashi. Nes, I know you think is a miracle, but Rashi says, Nisyonot. All the troubles that the Jewish people go through are tests. They are to test us, to give us a, a challenge. All these things that personal people go through as well. The challenges, the tests. God tests those that fear him because they can handle it. And what's the purpose of it? She says, in order to see if they can pass the challenge, if they will remain God-fearing. If you look at all the troubles that the Jewish people went through during different times, or even personal people, the amazing thing is that even though people go through hard times, you see, they still come to class, they still come to shul, they still pray, they go to the tehillim, they still give charity. But Olam is so proud when he sees people that go through hard times and still stay by him. And that's what the end of the pasuk says, Mepnei koshet sela. It says, Lekashet midoteka be'olam. Before a person is going to get something great in his life, sometimes Bore Olam gives them a big test. Why? So when God rewards the person, he doesn't want people to say, what did that person do? What is, what is he getting all this for? Why don't I get it? So God can say, what are you talking about? Look what he just went through. Look at the test that he just passed. So that when a person goes through a, a, a challenge, most of the time, it's a setup that something great is coming in his life. But Bore Olam has to make the person earn it so there won't be any claims by other people that will say, oh, what is this guy doing over here? On the contrary, when they see somebody that went through a difficult time then get some reprieve and get some blessing, what do the people say? He deserves it. He deserves it. Look at him. Even though they went through a hard time, they gave tzedakah, they did chesed, and they didn't stop praying, and they didn't lose their faith. If Hashem wants to reward them, Give it to them. Koshet. Koshet means truth. In order to establish the truth of God, to show that God's justice is emet, why he rewards certain people. And the classic example, if you want to know the classic example, is Avraham. The pasuk says, Avraham became wealthy, and Avraham became successful, and Avraham became uh, uh, you know, the most uh, prosperous person. We know Avraham is chesed. So if somebody will come to God, and there's the mashal, the midrash says, that they come to God and say, what are you giving him all this stuff for? And God says, what are you talking about? When he was 100 years old, I told him to take his son, and uh, uh, the, uh, the son that he had when he was 100 years old, I told him to take him and bring him on the, on, on, on the, on the mezbeah. What, he didn't pay for this? Did you do something like this? I tested him first. And God tested Abraham. And because he tested him and he passed, now it's justified when he wants to give him the reward. 
That's the simple, beautiful explanation. And that's, by the way, to me, that's very comforting. That whenever somebody's going through something, you have to know that's the setup for something great that's about to happen. But when a person's going through a hard time, he doesn't see that. He just sees the troubles, and he says, I want to get out of this. Okay, well, we don't ask for troubles, but when they come, if a person goes through it correctly, and accepts the beatings correctly, and doesn't challenge God, and doesn't you know, have any uh, bitterness against God, and doesn't have any claims against God, which is normal, but if you can overcome that, Avram could have, could, have, could have had a lot of claims. He could have said, listen, I'll have one kid from Sarah. 137 years, I gotta kill the kid now? Leave me alone, what do you want from me? I didn't, I didn't prove myself already, I passed nine tests already. What, what, what do you have to give me this one for? He didn't question it, okay, another test, no problem. Well, look what ended up happening. After he did that, psh, tremendous things happened to Avram. Yitzhak would get married, he would have grandchildren, bing, all the blessings started to set forth. It's almost as if like a test is like a, a clog that's blocking the pipe. And if you could just pass the test, you unclog the pipe, and then the shefa starts to, starts to come through. But again, when a person's going through it, it's hard to see anything that I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, in retrospect, when you learn the stories of the tzaddikim, you say, wow, that's a great, great ending. But again, not an easy thing when a person's going, but that's what the basuk is telling us. Now, I'll explain it to you. Listen, I didn't only come to explain these um, uh, Pesukim according to a simple explanation. I want to explain according to Derashot to, to show you that the Torah is like a kaleidoscope. You can take one Pesuk and just turn it around and look, look at it from different ways and they all have a beautiful, beautiful meaning. So I'm going to introduce to you now what the Hatam Sofer says. I don't know if you figured out that I like to quote the Hatam Sofer. I'm sure you're, you're noticing that. For good reason. He was one of the great, uh, great Mefarshim, great Sadiqim. So he says, simple. He's learning the word nes as a miracle, like we thought initially. You gave us a miracle in order that that one miracle would produce many miracles. What are we talking about? Is there an event in history where one miracle happened and as a result of that one miracle, many miracles followed? He says, yes. That is referring to specifically the miracle of Hanukkah. Ladies, I know it's not Hanukkah now, but that doesn't mean just because it's not Hanukkah that we can't talk about it. We could talk about all the holidays. We'll talk about Purim in a minute if that makes you happy. But the point is, Hanukkah, he says the following. He says, there were two miracles that happened on Hanukkah. First, when the Hashemunayim came into the temple, and they saw that the Greeks, they defiled all the oil. There was no more oil. There was no more oil. And what happened? Ness, they found one pure, unadulterated, uh, uh, untampered uh, uh, bottle of oil with the seal of the Kohen Gadol. Now that's a miracle. Now, you might not call it a miracle of splitting up the sea. It's not a supernatural miracle, but that's called a natural miracle. You know, uh, uh, in America, they would say, oh, what a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. It's a Hashem made it that the Greeks, for whatever reason, didn't see that, that, that bottle. Now, they were searching, because they went out of their way to tamper every single bottle. So it's a miracle in, in natural order that their eyes did not zone in on that one little bottle. Fine. 
And there was enough for one night. That was the first nis. But guess what happened as a result of that nis? They took the oil and they poured it in the menorah. And what ended up happening? It ended up lasting for an additional seven nights. So therefore, the oneness of finding the oil, the ness of the finding of the says, in order that that should produce an additional seven miracles that it lasted every single night. A beautiful explanation. Now, for those of you that are going to say, hey, but what about Purim? Why are you only talking about Hanukkah? So I'll tell you something about Purim also. That's what Avhida says. Avhida says like this, you gave those that fear you a miracle. Who are those that fear you? Mordechai and Esther. They're the ones that fear God. Ness. What was the Ness? Ness that uh, they got saved. And therefore, there was a, a double miracle. Uh, Mordechai saw uh, that he himself got saved. Haman wanted to kill Mordechai, and he wanted to kill also the nation of Mordechai. Both things didn't happen. Neslet no says, he had the personal miracle that happened to Mordechai, that he was not beaten by Haman. As a matter of fact, Haman got hung on a tree, good for him. And then let no says, the miracle had legs. The miracle happened to us as well, that we were saved. But then the end of the Pasuk says, what was the purpose? In order to establish the truth, you remember what happened at the end of Megillat Esther? The Jewish people reaffirmed their acceptance of the Torah. As it says in Megillat Esther, The Jews said, we accept the Torah again wholeheartedly. When they saw how great Mordechai was, the rabbi, they said, you know what? The Torah is unbelievable. These rabbis that interpret the Torah, they're unbelievable. So therefore, the reason why Hashem made the miracle of Purim was to bring the Jewish people to kosher, to the truth, to, to, to re-accept and reaffirm the truth of the Torah. As it says, And then it says that ultimately the Jewish people made Teshua. So that's, that's another way to learn, the, uh, to learn that Pasuk. Now let's go to the next uh, Pasuk. In order that the Yedidecha is the friends, those that are close to God, they will be Yahalitsun. Yahalitsun means they will be saved from trouble. You know, when there's a trouble coming, and all of a sudden somebody gets out of the way at the last minute, so, ah, that's Halitsun. You got saved. So, Borea Olam saved us from these troubles. Leman Yahalitsun Yedidecha. David says, God, let your right hand come and bring us salvation and answer us. The Mepharshim say that, again, all these are mashals because God doesn't have hands. Put that in your brain that all this is just to make it palatable to you. God doesn't have anything physical. But they say that when a, uh, when a warrior uh, is in war and he sees he's losing, the olden days this is, so he would take his let's say, sword, and today we'd put a white flag. And the olders, what did they do? They would take their sword and they would put it behind their back. That was already a sign that, that's it, they, they, they're not going to win anymore. So, when the Jewish people are losing on the battlefront, so, it's as if God's sword is behind him. As if God's saying, 
I'm not going to defend. So therefore, David Amelik says, Hoshia Yeminecha, let your right hand, Kivyachol, the sword, let it be, bring salvation. Va'anini and answer us. Elohim, now he's talking to God. This is referring to when God is going to ultimately bring us out of exile. You see, David Amelik is really a tzaddik. He used these personal stories not only to pray for himself, but he's praying for us. What does he care about us? He's in trouble. He's fighting in Halab. He's fighting in Damascus. He's got Edom on his head. And what is he worried about? Hashem saved me, but the future also. Elohim diber bekocho eloza. God, when you are going to bring in the exiles and my children are going to rule over them, at that point, eloza, we will rejoice in your salvation. Ahaleka Shechem. And we were going, we're going to divide the spoils. Shechem over here means the spoils of the enemies. The Emek Sukkot Amaded. Now, Rashi says, interestingly enough, there's another beauty. He says, Sukkot Ze'eni Yodea Me'ezi Umahi. He's, I don't know who these people of Sukkot are. Imagine that, that she comes along and says, honest. He says, I don't know who these people are. He says, Yadati He says, maybe it's these people that when the Jewish people came out of Mitzrayim, it says they came to a place called Sukkot. He says, maybe it's those people. She's not too sure what that nation is. Now listen to the next Pasuk. Li now, he says like this. He's referring to different regions. The Gil'ad region, that's in the north. The Menashe, that's referring to the tribes of Menashe and Ephraim. Ma'oz Roshi, they're going to be the strong ones. Yehuda Mehokkeki, and then the tribe of Yehuda. From the tribe of Yehuda comes the, uh, the aristocrats and the leaders. Now, what is this pasuk specifically referring to? So I want to explain it one way. All these uh, different tribes over here are referring to different regions in Eretz Israel that the tribes were uh, in control of. And David Melk is praying that we should get all these territories back. The tribes in Israel, Gilad was on the other side of the Jordan. We should get that uh, tribe as well. And therefore, we should have the king of Yehuda back in place. These are all futuristic uh, uh, items that are being said. However, I would like to explain this uh, pasuk over here based on something that I saw recently from uh, a sefer called Likute Muharam. That's some of the teachings of Rabbi Nachman from Breslau. I think over here he gives us a tremendous piece of advice. To me, it doesn't matter. He learns his advice from this pasuk. To me, whether you remember the pasuk or not, the advice is unbelievable. He talks about why sometimes people pray and they're not answered. I get this question all the time. So I pray, I pray, I pray all day long. I'm crying, he's doing everything, or she's doing everything, and they don't get results. So what's the answer to that? So Rabbi Nagman from Breslau gives uh, some advice, a possibility. 
He says, everybody can come to a certain madrega, a certain re- a level that's called moshel bitfilato, that he has control over his prayer, meaning that his prayers will work. He says there's two items that are interfering, that stand in the way. Miniot, obstacles. And if you can get over these two obstacles, he says, then the prayers have a, you know, an open road to be answered. You want to know what the two obstacles are? One obstacle is before you open the Sidur, and one is after you open the Sidur and start praying. Give you them in order. It's an amazing piece. This is a problem that happens to religious people like us. Tzadikim, like those in front of me, Tzadkaniyon, that we're all doing good things. And because we're doing good things, everybody feels good about themselves, which is not a bad thing. But we go into the prayer with a little um, religious arrogance. I just came to the class, I sat with the rabbi, I read Tehillim for an hour, and I go, pray menhaz. I deserve it. You start to, in your brain, at least flaunt your religious credentials. You know, you're doing, everybody's doing good things. But that is an impediment in tefillah. That when a person comes in as if he deserves it because of his religious accomplishments, it breaks the humility. And humility is one of the items that tefillah is... Uh, is predicated on. So he says, Shumi Yuhaskadol. It, it happens, I, I don't know about you, but we have a custom that we learn for an hour every morning before Shahrit. I think it's a great idea, but it's a challenge. Because after you learn Dafa Yumi for an hour, you finish the Daf, and it's a great feeling. You, know, you finish the Daf and you read it properly. Now you go to pray, so you have to control that exalted feeling that, you know, you're God's gift to the world because you read the page of Gemara, and therefore now he deserves to answer all the prayers like, uh, you know, as if you're one of the Lamed Vab Sadiqim. So th- th- there has to be a little control over there, Rabbi Nachman says, calm down, calm down. You, 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 you know, you're not the biggest Sadiq. Right, especially if you just finished toiling in the service of God. what he says. Control over your prayer cannot happen as long as one has this uh, feeling of, you know, uh, highness. Rak is amazing. You gotta forget your accomplishments. He has to imagine, I was just born now, I have no resume. I'm not thinking, I'm starting from scratch, I'm a kid just born. And I'm alone. He says that concept is called in, I don't know what you want to call it, Hasidut, whatever language you want to use. That concept is called Menashe. What does the word Menashe mean? Don't tell me it's a name of somebody. What is, what is the name named after? What was he named after? Menashe means to forget. Nashani in Hebrew. It's to forget. He says the concept of Menashe means to forget your religious accomplishments when you're coming in front of God. Don't come along now and think that you have status because look what I did. Oh, here he comes. Here he comes again. Well, now he's going to come now and show off. But I'm not interested in showing off. 
come to me without any uh, pre, uh, you know, conditions on who you are, what you did, and why you deserve everything. That's called the principle of menashe, lashon nishyon v'shikha. Ki nashat, and, and he quotes the pasuk where we see this word, ki nashani elohim et kol bet abi, I forgot all my accomplishments of my ancestors. You know who I am, my father, my grandfather, forget about it. Ve'et kol amali, and all my toil that I did for God. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not a time to feel good about that. But prayer is not that time. When you go into tefillah, that's not the time to bring in all your ammunition from all of your, and this is what my father was, and all your religious uh, efforts. Although, I find it a little difficult because we do mention the, um, the Avot. We mention the way Abraham, the way Yitzhak, the way Yaakov. And we do mention our... So I guess it has to be done in a, in a humble way. The second thing happens during tefillah. I, I, I was never aware of this. I mean, you tell me before I stop praying, I have to, you have to get off the horse. Off the horse, the religious horse, get down to earth. Don't, don't, don't hold yourself in such a. You're coming in front of God. Again, in front of God, everybody's nothing anyway. So, what are you going to do? In front of God, you're going to start uh, bragging? Like what I did. You're nothing. You're a bug. You ever go to the top of the Empire State Building and you look down, everybody looks like a little ant. So, could you imagine how we look in front of God? A little small guy, when you're going to come along now. Hey, look how great he is. A little, little ladybug. What are you doing over there? So, therefore, he says, you have to. You know, lower the uh, lower the volume on your uh, on your actions. The second thing happens in the tefillah itself. Something happens that when a person committed sins in his life, those sins create um, uh, negative angels, whatever you want to call them, spirits. I don't want to scare anybody, but it's a reality. It creates something. And that's where bad thoughts come into a person's mind. Sometimes when a person's praying, also some crazy idea jumps into his brain. And the person, where's that coming from? Where, 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 where all of a sudden, I never thought about this all day long. All of a sudden, some crazy ideas that are not the most pure sometimes, all of a sudden, jump into his head. So you always think, oh, I must be such a terrible person if these ideas are jumping in my head as I'm praying to God. Why all of a sudden now? Wow, this must be only happening to me because I must be a rotten person. I mean, now my brothers, no, you don't understand what's going on over here. Those clearly thoughts that come into a person's brain that might be not might not be the most purest thoughts are coming definitely as a result of sin. The sins cause those thoughts to. But why do they come specifically during prayer? Because the way to overcome and purify the sin is that one that when one negates that thought out of his brain and replaces it with thoughts of prayer, he has now turned the sin from a negative to a positive. You understand what we just said? It's an amazing thing. That we always thought that when those bad thoughts come in, it's a bad sign. But actually the Rabbi Nachman says, it's a moment that God's giving you a chance to purify it. So it's like that sin that you did, there's the thought right now. If you're going to fester it, then you blew it. But if you're able to subjugate the thought and get it out of your brain and replace the bad thought with a kavanah. Some people have a bad thought, they go with it. And then the Amidah, they realize they're, they're in China. Where, where, where am I? 
They ended up uh, getting lost in their thoughts. China's not a bad thought. I'm talking about sometimes people think of not nice things. But the point is, if a person subjugates this way, catch yourself. Go back to the Amidah. So he says, at that moment over there, and I'll read his words. He says, Sometimes when you're praying, some you know, foreign thoughts come into the person's brain. If you want to be a master of prayer, this is another impediment. Thoughts that are not germane to the subject of tefillah, especially if they're bad thoughts, they'll ruin the prayer. If to break the thoughts. How do you break a bad thought? Very simple. What a good thought. You don't need to take a hammer and break your head. You just have to replace it with a good thought. Listen to this. It turns the bad thought into a merit. You're able to turn dirt into gold. Listen, I know it doesn't make sense. To us, we're happy to get rid of the bad. But in, in this world, they believe that the bad doesn't remain bad. When you replace bad with good, it turns the bad into good itself. And if we elevate the bad thought into a, into a positive, it's like, uh, it's unbelievable. And that concept is called, in this world, Ephraim. We talk about Menashe, now we talk about Ephraim. What is Ephraim? What is the root word of Ephraim? Lefrot. Lefrot is to multiply. Peru urvu. Ephraim. To, to uh, increase. So therefore, Ephraim is the concept to take the bad and to turn it into good. Therefore, we're multiplying. Not only the good should be good, but even the negative. Perush ki adavar. It says in the Pasuk by Ephraim. Ki Ephraim Elohim be'eres onyi. Yosef said, I was prosperous in the land of my impoverishment in Egypt. But based on what Rav is saying is that in the place of impoverishment, meaning in the place of poverty where you have bad thoughts, in that place itself you can flourish. How? Anyway, now you learn two secrets. Before prayer, you have to work on what? Menashe. Menashe, to forget your... Your religious credentials. I'm coming humble. I don't have anything. I'm coming to God like nothing. And in the prayer itself, you have to recognize that if Chazbe Shalom, something enters, instead of getting all upset and then just giving up hope, instead you have to look at it as, wow, what an opportunity Hashem gave me. Hashem's giving me an opportunity now to turn that bad thought into a thought of Kiddushah. That's the concept of Ephraim. And he builds it out. And again, I'm not so concerned about where he builds it out from. I just came out the concept. But if, if it, since we're learning the Pasuk, he says, the Pasuk we just read, Li Gil'ad Veli Menashe Ve'Ephraim. He says, Li Menashe is referring to before the Tefillah. Menashe, I forget my, uh, my credentials. Ve'Ephraim, during Tefillah. So Menashe is before the prayer, forgetting what you did, and then Ephraim is during. But what is, what are we trying to forget when it says Ephraim, the next one is Ma'oz Roshi, the things in my head, the concepts that come in my head. And the first word, Li Gil'ad, he has a whole talk on that. He says that God, when he created the world, he visioned the prayers of the Sadiqim. He saw the prayers of the Sadiqim, 
And the prayers of the tzaddikim are like a jewel on God's head, like a crown. And the word gil'ad is gal. Gal is revelation, like legalot, uh, to reveal. And ed is a jewelry. Li gil'ad, God says, it was revealed to me at the creation of the world, the uh, fine uh, uh, ornaments of the prayers of the tzaddikim. And what were the two ingredients that the tzaddikim had? Li That they know that before they pray, they have a concept of menashir, they forget, they don't come in with any, you know, uh, arrogance on their, uh, you know, mitzvot uh, or the good things that they did. And during the tefillah, they come in with Ephraim, that they turn the bad thoughts and enter their brain on purpose. It's okay. If the bad thought comes in, you have to say, oh, not that you're lucky, but it's an opportunity now. To turn that bad thought by how? Breaking the bad thought, don't let it fester, and go back to the tefillah. At that point, you took the bad thought, you didn't get rid of it. You turned it into a, turned it into a mitzvah. Anyway, I thought that's a, uh, a fantastic, uh, fantastic derash from Rabbi Nachman. Anyway, uh, I just want to say one more, uh, one more thing, if you can get to the last two pesukim of the chapter. Avalanu izrat mitzar, David HaMelech says, uh, please God, we need help from our enemies. Hazrat Mitzar, Veshav Teshuat Adam. And uh, for sure, uh, salvation does not come from man. The salvation from man is Shav. Shav is, you know, nothing. When, when we rely on humans, you know, you think that uh, we go to the United Nations, you know, and they're going to help us. Shav Teshuat Adam. Don't put your trust in, uh, in Havalana, only God can give us the uh, aid. And that's, uh, we've seen that many times. We trust on certain nations. And then uh, I think Chamberlain said that nations uh, have um, one thing all in common, and that's interests. They only have their interests. They don't have any, uh, anything else. They only have their own interests involved. Therefore, why, why put your, your trust in, uh, in, in, in man? The salvation that comes through man is, is shav. And then it says, Through God we will see Ha'il is success. And he will trample our enemies. Which means there's going to come a time where we're going to, uh, God is God, this Al-Sheikh says, that sometimes we don't deserve God to destroy our enemies. So therefore God does it out of mercy. But over here it says, Belohim Belohim is justice. Sometimes we, we deserve it. And therefore God says, it's justified. And therefore David Amalek is praying, we should get to that level that we can have prosperity, Belohim, where God says, yes, you earned it. And therefore the, uh, the punishment that I'm giving your enemies is because it's deserved. And not only with Rahamim, and at that point, God will trample our enemies. Okay, stop over here.